Well, good morning, family. It is a joy to be with each and every one of you this morning in the house of the Lord, adoring our living, ever-reigning King. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, you are faithful to your people. Always faithful. Always faithful. Father, we stand amazed to be recipients of your faithfulness. To be those who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. To be given the capacity to taste and see that you are good. Father, we're grateful. And we ask that in your faithfulness this morning, as we open our Bibles, Father, would you be so kind to teach us great and glorious things. And not just teach us for the sake of increasing our knowledge or expanding our vocabulary. But Father, would you teach us in such a way that we can't help but leave being transformed and being resolved to live out these things for your glory. The lost need to see the brightness of Christ shine through us. The redeemed need to see the brightness of Christ shine through us. So, Father, we ask, we come, we come hungry, we come as beggars, knowing that you have the nourishment we need. And your word truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Father, we are here, we are humble. And we stand ready to receive. Be with us, Father. For the glory of the wonderful name of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in the book of 1 John. So if you want to go ahead and open up there, we'll be in the second chapter of 1 John. We began this series way back in August of 2021. And we've only covered most of the first two chapters, and we've done so in about five messages. So uh, since 2021, since August of that year, there are many new faces here at Providence. Uh, And for some folks here this morning, this is your first message from 1 John. And so negatively, I understand the conundrum here. I understand the difficulty of quickly bringing us all up to speed with a full context of what's going on in 1 John. But, positively, we have several things going for us. One of those things is that the Lord has blessed us with a lot of technology. And so all the sermons up to this point are stored on our website, on our app. You can go back this week in your own time and get filled in on what you missed since 2021. Uh, The second thing going for us is the Apostle John here, his themes tend to repeat very frequently. Throughout this letter. So really, if you miss something in one chapter, 
Just hang on because you'll likely get a taste of it in the next chapter. Okay, so we have that going for us. But then the third thing we have going for us is the cyclical, repetitive nature of John's writing as opposed to a much more linear approach straight from A to B. He kind of goes from A to B to C, maybe to F, back to G, over to H, and it comes back to A. It's just the way he thinks, and I like that about John because I think that way. So he's messed up, I'm messed up, we're going to get along just fine. But it does make it manageable, very manageable, to formulate messages with very quickly accessible broad points of doctrine and very clear, broad, sweeping, but pungent points of application. But let me give you just a little bit of context to bring you up to speed this morning. Let's look at the characters that are at play in the book of 1 John. We've mentioned this already. There are at least three groups around the groups that, uh, what, who is John writing to? We have the committed, we have the corrupt, and we have the confused. The committed, the corrupt, and the confused. Who are the committed? Well, this group consists of those who have heard the gospel, and now they are holding fast to the gospel in its pure fullness. Those are the committed. But then we have the corrupt. John makes mention of those going out from us, but not being of us. This collection of defectors, they've abandoned correct teaching, all right, about the nature, about the work of Christ, and they have really bought into a pre-Gnostic view that labeled anything material as evil and taught that one could attain esoteric knowledge about God through affirming goodness in the souls of man rather than repenting of sin and placing faith in Christ for salvation. This led them, being the corrupt, this led them to a very corrupt moral lifestyle. And they were tormenting and tempting others to follow them. They were messing around with the committed. So we have the committed, the corrupt, and then we have the confused. We have this group of people known as the confused. These are the vulnerable folks who stand at the crossroads of making a decision. Thus, John is writing, they are at the crossroads of making this decision. Will they follow John's teaching? Will they follow the teachings of Christ? Will they follow the pure doctrine of the gospel? And the exhortations that flow from that, or will they follow suit with the dissenters? They're at the crossroads. And up to this point in our text, John has attempted to anchor his audience in biblical orthodoxy, which is right belief, which logically precedes biblical orthopraxy, which is right living. And in a very apparent gradient fashion he kind of weaves in and out of instruction regarding the true nature of christ he weaves in and out of the subtle but really obvious deception of the enemy and he weaves in and out of these exhortations to abide in christ for the honor of god for the glory of god and for their joy he wants them to remain in christ and be reminded of their identity in him. And so this morning, being very cyclical in nature, John's writing, 
this morning's message, a lot of those themes are covered. A lot of these themes are covered. Yet, here we have John adding another layer of encouragement, another layer of motivation as to why they should remain in Christ and remain resolved to hold fast to right doctrine. And God willing, we will see this clearly as we move through our text together this morning. But if you would, please stand out of honor for God's word and let us read together. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 28. And we will read through verse 10 of chapter 3. First John 2, 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You may be seated. If you were here for the last sermon, you would know that we ended with verse 28. And now we're beginning this sermon with verse 28. Just know that throughout this epistle, John can only be thought of as loosely making transitions. His shifts in thinking entail a thought as connective tissue, a thought Not necessarily a verse, but a thought as connective tissue between sections. And this really makes it difficult at times to identify black and white breaks 
But again, with John being circular, it's not really that necessary. He gives us this morning like a rush of fresh wind, a rush of fresh air really to the soul, infusing joy and confidence and motivation, moving us in the direction of continually honoring Christ with our lives. So again, in that gradient fashion, he overlays where we were with where we are this morning. And where we are this morning is wonderful because the text provides the main thrust of where John is pastorally with those he is writing to. He gives us the primary impetus for believers living lives worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in typical encouraging John fashion, any talk of admonition is bathed, deeply bathed in positivity, in encouragement. And that gives us our first point this morning, which is this, if you're taking notes, that abiding in Christ produces confidence at his coming. Abiding in Christ produces confidence at his coming. Let's look at verses 28 and 29 together. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. When he appears, church, not if, hallelujah, when Christ returns from glory in judgment to set all things right, and we'll get deeper into that when we cover chapter 4, verse 17 in that context, But John here, with an eschatological end times angle, he's motivating his people and his use of appearing, this term appearing in general, really permeates this entire section. It shows up in verse 2 twice in speaking of Christ's second coming. And it also pops up in John's mind when conveying why Jesus was sent by the Father, namely to destroy the works of the devil. So, When Christ returns, he wants his readers to have what? Confidence. He wants them to have confidence, not shame. This word confidence carries with it the idea of boldness and openness. Having the absence of fear when talking to someone face to face. So instead of this being an occasion for cowering, It is to be a time of commendation. It is not a time to retreat, but an occasion to run toward and rejoice. And the training course that that John has set before us all the way up to this point and will continue to set before us is practicing righteousness. Practice righteousness. Put it into daily living, all right? Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous... If you have that knowledge, you may be sure that everyone who, what, practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, that's to work it out, to move it into a habitual rhythm of life. That righteousness, that which is like him, that which brings honor to him. 
can't help but think of Titus 2, 11 and following, where he says, God's grace has come. Yes, bringing salvation. Hallelujah. But that same grace is training us. We are to be trained. Practicing righteousness. Trained to what? Renounce ungodliness. Cast off that which is displeasing to the Lord and put on that which is pleasing to him as we await the appearing of our Lord. We should think of the collection of parables given to us in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. We don't have time to get into them, but just write that down. There could be some good reading for you this afternoon. The homeowner and the thief, the difference between a faithful and wicked servant, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of uh, the stewarding of talents, Read all those things. These accounts are meant to move us into striving to live out the grace given to us by God. It is meant to produce longing in us for Christ's return. They're meant to produce eagerness for His return. Think of Hebrews 9.28 with me. Christ will come to save those who are eagerly Waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. See, John is in the business in this context of showing his readers that if they belong to Christ, there is a day of reward on the horizon, not rejection. 1 Corinthians 4 5. Each one will receive his commendation from God. So it's a time of accommodation. He encourages his readers to persevere in the faith on this basis. But if he is so positive, why is there any mention of shame in verse 28? Shame, in this context, points to divine displeasure. Something John wants his readers to circumvent altogether. After all, don't the scriptures teach us something in Romans 8, verse 1? There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. So why would there be shame? Well, it's likely that John is highlighting what Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 and following. Believers receiving their commendation from God. and we, we, we just don't have time to flesh out a theology of rewards. And John, really, in this passage, doesn't give much weight or time to it. So we're going to kind of go with him, move quickly past it. But I do want to point your attention to a couple of posts on our blog. All right? Here are the dates. All the way back from December of 2014. 12-3. And then December 11th of 2014. Those are beautifully written blogs that deal with eternal rewards. But for the sake of time, we're going to move on. And John leads us right to the end of verse 29, which is our second point, And it is this. Confidence at Christ's coming is predicated on the righteousness of Christ. Confidence at Christ's coming is predicated on the righteousness of Christ. Look again with me at verse 29. 
if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Of him. I believe that the Lexham English Bible does a, a better job translating that verse. It says, if you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been fathered by him. If you know, then you know. The first, if you know, carries the weight of absolute and intuitive knowledge. You are clearly aware of something because it has been so obviously presented to you. It's just there. It's given. All right? The second, if you know, implies a knowledge that is gained by experience. So if you know intuitively, if you've been shown that Christ is righteous, meaning he is wholly conformed to the will of the Father. Think John eight twenty nine. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. What about 1 Peter 2, 22? Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. If you want to sound really cool and smart on the playground with your friends, you can get into this doctrine, what we call the doctrine of impeccability. Jesus' inability to sin. But if you know that Christ is righteous, then you are learning that those who put Christ's righteousness into practice have been born of God. That's what's going on. So up to this point, John's angle for instilling confidence has strictly been eschatological. Now we're going to see that it picks up the layer of something else, picks up, picks up this layer of new birth, picks up this layer of new birth, being born of God. And at this point in the, in the letter, this is now going to be a major point of emphasis for John throughout the remaining chapters. From verse 29 on, he brings this theme to the surface several times. We see it in this verse, verse 29. We see it in chapter 3, verse 9. We see it in chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verses 1, 4, and 18. And he wants to remind them, he does remind them of the reality and the implications of being born of the Spirit. Okay? Think with me back to the book of John, maybe chapter 3, where Jesus and Nicodemus are having a conversation Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So John is talking here of an Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 type of cleansing. He's talking about regeneration. This is God's regeneration is God's gracious imparting of spiritual life through the Spirit to undeserving sinners. God's 
gracious imparting of spiritual life through the Spirit to undeserving sinners. And this leads the sinner to respond in faith to the great news, the good news that Christ came to live, came to die, and be raised, that ungodly man could be reconciled to God who is unequivocally holy. So John is making a distinction here. Those who have been born of God do certain things. Namely, they practice righteousness that comes directly from the righteous one. And on the flip side of that, those who have not been given spiritual life, they do not practice righteousness. No matter what it may look like on the outside, no matter what the appearance is, and this is very, very, very important because those around John's audience are trying, they're active, they're trying to deceive the confused, even the committed, trying to draw them away from pure doctrine and pure living, and they themselves, they're trying to achieve right relationship with God without the necessity of repentance and faith. You can't do that. You cannot do that. Now, jump down past verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's take a look at verse 2. I promise we'll come back to that verse. I'm not that kind of preacher. We've already noted that John is making a point to establish persevering confidence in his readers through the realities of Christ's return and the new birth. Well, very beautifully, we see the same things in this verse, but in reverse order. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There it is. The same thing, same concepts, just in reverse order. So let's put together some sort of equation here. We could attribute to Christ's return the variable A, and then give this term new birth the variable B. And so we have... The formation of a pattern. A, B, B, A. But notice, we skipped a verse. We don't want to do that. All right? It's there for a reason. We don't want to skip it. So let's go back to verse 1. And this is the variable C that we need to complete such a beautiful and pointed chiasm. Chiasm. Very literary, nerdy, and wordy way to emphasize something through a pattern of words and phrases. In fact, I think we have a graphic for this. We can put it up on the screen. This is what it looks like. All right? Christ's return, the first and the last, matching. Then it kind of narrows into the matching Bs, and it squeezes out into letter C, which tells us, see what kind of love. Yeah. All right? I understand the pun. See 
what kind of love. The Holy Spirit really just set this up for our joy and our confidence. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. It's not in my notes to make a joke like that. That that was free. I'll get fired for it later. We are meant literally to have our spiritual breath taken away at this reality. Literally, the text reads, Behold what love has given to us the Father. What love! Not only what love, but what love given. Are you with me, church? Given! Not earned, not purchased, but given. Galatians 2.16 is very clear. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And so this, this given love has brought us into a new type of relationship with God. It's not an external Facebook friends at a distance kind of relationship. Rather, it's a vitally internal relationship. It's organic. Sinners are now called sons. Criminals are now the king's children. Jesus is Savior, King, and Brother. Guys, that is absolutely staggering. And so stunning is this reality. It should be hard to move on from it. That's kind of the emphasis here. See, behold, isn't it great? And you just kind of stand back and you're like, wow, speechless. I mean, how do you adequately illustrate a miracle? Right? Some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. I have not been yet. I plan to go soon with my boys. But some of you have been there and stepped up to the rim and experienced some breathtaking moment. Am I right? For me... Honestly, being from the hills of, of way out nowhere, like seeing the ocean for the first time, my breath was taken away. I was an unbeliever at that time, and I remember standing on the beach looking at this vast body of water and thinking to myself, how did this j- just happen? There's got to be a God somewhere. That was my response. Now, in preparing for this message I was talking about beautiful things with my wife, not just her, but uh, talking over with her about her breathtaking moments growing up. And she told me a time in which she went to Crater Lake in Oregon. And she said the water there is so blue and so pristine. That was a long time ago. Maybe it's not anymore, but so pristine that it vividly reflects the clouds above the sky above in all its hues of blue and puffy whites. I mean, God's creation is absolutely astounding. It's wonderful. But it fails to do justice to the type of response to be elicited from recounting the reality of a verse like this. 
you get that? And so we are. <laughs> cool. And so we are. This is like one of those divine drop the mic moments. I'm out. Boom. See what kind of love. There's your confidence. Right? It's incredible. It's incredible. And we could stop the sermon right here. We would be well fed, I think, and just be resolved to go out and live for God's glory. I think. But I have more time, so bear with me. Do we understand the blessing of being God's children? Let's just kind of flush that out for a minute. The blessing of being God's children. Being able to relate to God as our good and loving Father. Hallelujah. Knowing that He understands us and has compassion on us. Even experiencing His discipline that we might mature in Christ. Guys, that list goes on and on and on and on, and so we are. Behold, what kind of love. He continues in verse 2, saying, We are God's children now, now, and our childhood will be fully matured and complete at the Lord's return. He says in the text, We shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. As one of your pastors, I want us, us, to be confident for that day. I want us to see Him without shame. To see Him without cowering. This verse has come out in sermons many times here at Providence. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so that beautiful chiasm, A to B and to C, see what kind of love, see what kind of love. That doesn't just leave us hanging with excitement. It moves us to action. That's where a lot of believers get it wrong. It moves us, yes, to excitement, but then yes, to action, to purpose. Thus, the title of this message, New Birth, New Hope, New Purpose. All right? And this provides our third and last point this morning. Knowing Christ's righteousness prompts purposeful Living. Knowing Christ's righteousness prompts purposeful living. This is what he's been after from the beginning. Because of the righteous one, know him and imitate him unto his glory. We could kind of quickly go through the rest of this text. Verse 29, practice righteousness look at chapter 3 verse 3 purify yourself verse 6 no one who bides in him keeps on sinning verse 7 practice righteousness verse 8 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning verse 10 practice righteousness we get the point 
We may get it in here, but do we get it in life? You with me? This, getting it into life, all of that is very foreign to John's opposers because they claim to know God through very cryptic knowledge. Where did that lead them? Led them to a life of debauchery. John does not want his readers to hide their actions or keep their knowledge hidden. He wants them to know the truth and then show the truth through their lives. And he even states in the second half of verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And I can't wait to swing back around to that in another sermon coming up. It's going to be glorious, but just hold it close to your chest that there is an eternal chasm between those who know and live for Christ and those who live for self and the fleeting pleasures of the world, okay? In the prologue of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John tells us, look at verse 7. John tells us in verse 7 of chapter 3. Little children, the ones I so dearly love, let no one deceive you. Don't let them deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. That's just what happens. Okay? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20? Turn there with me. He said this, beware. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Figs from thistles. So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So, going back to 1 John... Chapter 3, we get down to those verses, verses 4 through 10, that whole block. And if you're looking at that and you're looking at your watch, you're like, how is this ever going to get done? Well, here's how it's going to get done. We're going to put a graphic on the screen, and I'm going to let you write down as I explain all this. Okay? There are those who are habitually dead in sin. Okay? There are those, I love how the phones come out, click, click, habitually righteous in Christ. Either habitually dead in sin, habitually righteous in Christ. Verse 4, if you're habitually dead in sin, you practice sin. That's lawlessness. Verse 6, you keep sinning because there's no relationship. Verse 7, you're deceived. Verse 8, strong language, you are of the devil. Verse 9, you're not born of God. You're not born of God. Those who are 
habitually righteous in Christ. Verse 5, they are beneficiaries of the work of Christ. He came to take away sin. Verse 6, they have the ability to abide in Him. Verse 7, they have power to practice righteousness as Christ is righteous. Verse 8, and hallelujah for this, there's freedom from works of the devil being destroyed by the Son of God. And then verse 9, they're born of God, and God's seed remains within. As we opened our service this morning, Pastor Rick read John 8, 31 through 38. This is the picture. You are either free to abide in Christ, or you are enslaved to sin, leading to eternal damnation and separation from God. One has experienced the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the expiation of guilt. The other remains dead in their transgressions. One has an interest in the Son of God. The, only, the other only a claim to worldly pleasure and gain. And this term, Son of God, It's significant to John. It's significant to Scripture. Significant should be to us. When we see the phrase, Son of God, we should tremble in humility and be crushed under the weight of such gratitude for what has happened. This is the first time John mentions Son of God, but he's going to mention it seven more times throughout the letter, and it really, really comes to light in chapter 4, verse 15, where he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God, and Lord willing, will enjoy that at another time. But in the immediate context, he conveys that the Son of God appeared to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. That word destroy carries with it the force of Jesus loosing or releasing the deaf man's tongue in Mark 7, verse 35. It's the word used in Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the same word used in 1 Peter chapter 3 to describe the heavens that are soon to be destroyed. It emphasizes authority, it emphasizes finality, and it emphasizes divinity. It speaks of Christ's power in defeating the enemy fully. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself... Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. Guys, because of Christ's victory over the enemy through his atoning death and his vindicating resurrection, the believer, according to John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, the believer cannot keep on sinning because God's seed abides in him. And that refers to the Spirit's use of the word to bring about conversion in the life of the believer. Now, John is not denying that the believer sins. To do that would contradict much of what we've already covered in the letter. Namely, chapter 2, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. We rejoice in that because I don't know about you, but I still sin. Right? Or how about back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Confess our sin to him. He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us and to cleanse us. Hallelujah for that. All right? But guys, if the seed is in us, there cannot be an ongoing habitual rhythm of life in which we live like the devil but proclaim that we live in the light. Cannot happen cannot happen. And so he leads us to verse 10 in our text this morning, really as a summary statement of everything that's been said. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John, we've not been talking about loving our brother yet. But there it is again. There's his circular thinking. He brings another piece of connective tissue that's going to lead us right into the next sermon. So we're going to hold off on that piece. But just know we have evidence of those who belong to God and those who do not. Those who are either fathered by God or fathered by the devil. So the question is, Which brand of child are you? Which brand of child are you? If the Lord is showing you, graciously showing you that you are enslaved to your sin and you're not a child of God, don't resist this morning. God is doing something. Repent. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it. Forsake it. It is deliberate rebellion against the good and direct commands of God. Forsake it and turn to Jesus. He is tender. He will forgive. He will restore. But if you don't, if you don't, and your days end, you will remain a child of the devil. And you will reap a sinner's reward. And that is eternal torment and separation from God for all eternity. 
there is living water available. (laughs) There is living water available for you today. Come to Christ. Come drink. Talk to someone today. If you are overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, talk to someone today. Today could be the day that you know intuitively something about the new birth and a new hope and a new purpose and truly know the righteousness of Christ. Be reconciled to God. But for those of us who truly rejoice that we belong to the King of Kings. And when we read chapter 3, verse 1, and see what kind of love the Father has given to us, and so we are, we just get excited about all that, right? We should. But if you have been transformed from an enemy to a child of God, there are a few applications as we close that I want to pull out for our benefit. Number one, be careful of what we call around here a lot to be morbid introspection. We need to be aware of this. It is possible for a true blood-bought child of God to feel like they're not a child because of some besetting sin. Be careful of running to extremes. And being bothered by your sin, it's very likely that you're showing yourself to be in the fight, not out of it. But if you, if that's you, if you need help, With anything, any specific sin issue, please ask one of the elders. We're all over. We'll be in the the lobby in the back at the end of the service. Ask us for direction. We have free biblical counseling. Okay, It's available. God's word has the answers to whatever you're facing. It is sufficient. Okay. Number two, for all of us fighting sin as a part of practicing righteousness, it will do us well to adopt what uh, Dr. Stuart Scott calls his battle plan for killing sin and abiding in Christ. Don't have the time to get into this, but there it is on the screen, and after the service, we'll put this back on the screen, and then we're going to go in, into this in detail in the coming months through a specific Sunday school series as we talk about killing sin in our lives. That's coming up toward the end of the year. But pray, rehearse gospel truths, evaluate, set your heart to exercise faith, Put off the old self. Put on the new in Christ. Act. Do something. Implement changes at the levels of thinking and emoting and doing. Reload daily with God's word. Enlist others to help and pray. Remain dependent on the Holy Spirit for change. Again, I'll leave that graphic on the screen after the service. But number three, grow in knowing Grow in knowing and appropriating God's word. Sometimes the best application is to take a step back and just let the word do its thing. So I want us to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we'll close with this. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1. 
Let us truly heed these words, dear family. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time? from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ's righteousness, there is a new birth to be enjoyed. 
There is a new hope to be eagerly longed for. And there is a new purpose to be lived out. Dear children, practice righteousness. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for the freedom in knowing Christ. Behold, what kind of love has been given to us. What kind of love. Father, in the next few moments, would you be so kind as we sit in silence, as we pray, work on our hearts. Move us to be more resolved to live for your glory. More ambitious, righteously ambitious to cast off wickedness and put on that which is ours in Christ. Grow us in gratitude. Grow us in hunger. Father, if there's one here who does not know you, draw them to yourself. May this be the day they taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray all this in Jesus' name.